we had a trailer from Cars 3, and uh, so I don't know where it went, but that's okay. Has anybody seen it yet? Yes, great. I took Mike Hammer and uh, a couple of uh, little girls that I just love a lot, and we went and we saw Cars 3 to get a critical review of Cars 3 so that I would know if it was worthy of, of your time and our time here together. Let me just kind of tell you what it's about. If you have not seen it, that's a pretty good flick. And basically, as the Piston Cup season, it's, uh, it's about cars and racing, if you don't know, progresses Lightning McQueen, he's the star of the show, and his longtime friends find themselves being overshadowed by Jackson Storm. Jackson Storm is an arrogant racer who's part of a new generation that uses the latest technology and the latest uh, uh, tools to boost their performance. And the older racers are just kind of getting pushed aside, and they gradually retire or they're fired by their sponsors. And during the final race of the Piston Cup season, Lightning tries to overtake Jackson on the final lap in the final turn, but he spins out of control and suffers a terrible rollover crash. And he's off the track for four months. Four months later, Lightning is recovering in Radiator Springs, and he's reflecting on the crash that ended his career and of his late mentor, Doc Hudson. Well, he, he tells his girlfriend, Sally Carrera, and I didn't know that uh, Lightning had a girlfriend, it was news to me, and that he does not want to be forced into retirement. He wants to decide how to retire on his own terms. And he decides to start training again to get back on the right track. Well, the title of today's message is how to get back on track. What happens and what do you do when your life gets, and life gets you off track? When sickness or work or finances, stress, misplaced priorities, whatever it is, spins you out of control and you just kind of go in a, in a collision of, of priorities and a collision of conflicts and a collision of values and you just, you just get off track. You don't mean to. You don't intend to. It just kind of happens. It's not that you set out to it. It's not that you did anything intentionally sinful or deceitful. You just somewhere in your spiritual journey, in your relationship with Jesus Christ, you just got off track. That's where you find Jacob. Jacob is the same guy we talked about last week who married Rachel. Uh, let me just kind of give you the, the little bio on Jacob in case you weren't here last week. Jacob is the younger brother, or Jacob was born to Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac is Abraham's son. He has great parental lineage. And he was born as the second of a set of twins. And he was born, and they named him Jacob. And a lot of us name, or a lot of you name your children Jacob. And when Isaac named him Jacob, it was because he came out hanging on to the heel of his brother Esau. And, and the word Jacob meant deceiver, supplanter, heel catcher. Well, through a series of relation, family relational disasters, Jacob and Esau fought all during their childhood, all during their teenage years, well into their adulthood, Finally, Jacob, the deceiver, stole his birthright, stole his blessing. And then, because he was his mama's favorite, she heard that Esau, with his group of merry men, were going to come alongside and just 
kill Jacob. She said, you got to get out of here. Go to your uncle Laban's house and find safety and refuge there. And he did. And on his way, he came across a well as he was on his way to his uncle Laban's house. He came across a young lady who was watering the livestock and her name was Rachel. And there was a stone over the well and he moved the stone with his muscles and flexed them and, you know, did the, you know, thing like that and just, wow. And it was love at first sight. And she looked at him and went on. He looked at her and went, wow. And they kissed. And and Joseph wept when they kissed each other. And, And then he got up with Uncle Laban and they made a contractual agreement that he would work for him, Laban, that Jacob would work for Laban seven years to marry Rachel. That's love. Matter of fact, the Bible says it said it seems to them that it was a day. But on their wedding night, old Uncle Laban, who was himself a trickster and a deceiver, old Uncle Laban did the old switcheroo and Jacob married Leah instead of Rachel, worked another seven years for for Rachel, then worked another six years for livestock for 20 years. For 20 years, he was off track. Finally, he leaves and uh, he ends up in a town called Shechem. And and it's a family disaster in Shechem. His daughter is, is basically, you know, a reputation is soiled, and so they kill all most of the men in the city. And Jacob takes up residence in Shechem. Along the way, he has a experience with God at a place called Bethel in Genesis chapter twenty-eight. And at this Bethel experience, God promised to be his God, walk with him, guide him, protect him, give him a land of people and a blessing. And Jacob was underwhelmed. It was the same blessing and the same promise that had been given to his father and to his grandfather, Abraham. And the place of that blessing would reside in Bethel. He spends 20 years with Laban. He spends 10 years at this town, at least in this town called Shechem. And it was a good life. He made a good living and he, he prospered. And there was peace as his children grew up into adults and and they began to run their own parts of the family business and the livestock and the whole commodities and trade industry. And they were branching out and, and, and they were increasing in number. And it was a good life. And he settled for Shechem. When God called him to go to Bethel and said, you know, this is the place I want you, for almost 30 years he ignored that place. He had settled in Shechem because he got comfortable there. By the way, Shechem or Bethel was less than a day's journey from Shechem. It wasn't like this was a hard trip at all. It was, a, it was an easy trip. I wonder how many of us have gotten comfortable a day's journey away from our Heavenly Father. Oh, we're close enough that we can get there if trouble strikes. We're close enough that we can, you know, call upon Him if we get in a a, a bind, in a scrape, in a predicament. But life is good in Shechem. The family drama had died down. The finances were up. We weren't completely obeying God And that's where you find the beginning of chapter 35. Listen to Genesis chapter 35. If Jacob was on, 
if Jacob teaches us anything, he teaches us how you and I can get back on track. Everyone can get back on track if you'll learn the lessons of going back to Bethel. Let me give you five lessons to get back on track, all right? First of all, getting back on track means keeping the promises you've made to God. It means keeping the promises that you've made to God. Genesis chapter 35, just turn your Bibles open there or your Bible on your smart device. Turn it there and just leave it there for the rest of the time. And I'll bounce around to a couple of different passages, but chapter 35 is where we're going to be. Here's what it says in verse 1. And God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, dwell there, make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. There's four things Jacob is supposed to do there. First of all, he's supposed to arise. He's supposed to get up. It means depart. It means to leave. God is saying it is time to do what you need to do. Shechem is not good enough. You may think it's close enough, but it's not good enough. Please understand getting back on track doesn't happen without your participation. God isn't going to come in and swoop in and just all of a sudden, you know, do something. you got to rise and get back to the place you need to be with God. Secondly, it says, go up to Bethel. By the way, it's an interesting phrase, go up. When we go up north, we're going north. Bethel was south. The elevation was higher than Shechem, but it was still a southern journey. The implication when he said, go up to Bethel, it carries the idea of traveling to a better place for a better purpose. I like that. He said, Shechem is not where I want you, God is saying. You may think it's close, but it's not close enough. I want you to go to Bethel, and I want you to stay there. I want you to plant some roots there. I want you to to understand that Bethel may not be geographically better for you, but it is spiritually better for you. Go to Bethel. Then he says, build an altar. It's a great phrase. He said, build an altar. And there's a strong phrase implying, continue to live there. I'm sorry, I missed one. Settle down. Dwell there. Means to continue to live there and then build an altar, make it a permanent place. And whereas Shechem was known as a place of, of lessening family drama and a place of increased financial goods, Bethel would be the place of spiritual growth and spiritual purpose and spiritual fulfillment. There would be a different dynamic about going back to Bethel. He had already been there once. In chapter 28, he had seen angels ascending and descending on a ladder up to heaven. He wrestles with an angel, a tephophany of Christ in the Old Testament. And he does all of these things there at Bethel. And there it's where God covenants with Jacob to be his God. And his people would be his people. And so he's saying, I want you to build an altar because I want you to understand the main purpose of this place is spiritual. I want to build a spiritual nation, a spiritual kingdom through which all the world would be blessed. So I want you to understand that when God says, move from your Shechem and go back to your Bethel, the place where you first fell in love with Jesus Christ, and you realized you needed him, and yet you needed him so much to rededicate your heart and your life and your purpose towards the purposes of God. I want you to understand that that is just not all of God's doings. You have some doings to do with it. It's clearly seen in verse 1. 
Well, then getting back on the right track also means, also means being different. It means living differently. And I wish I had an entire message to preach on this. God spoke in verse 1. Jacob speaks in verse 2. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, so Jacob said to his household, and he told him two things. And to all that were with him. Because now he's got employees and his businesses have grown and he's going out beyond the livestock business and the cattle business and, you know, and he's doing other things. He says, put away the foreign gods. Put away the lesser gods. Put away the strange gods that are among you. Purify yourself and change your garments. There's two things what Jacob told to do if you're going to get back on the right track. First of all, you've got to put away the false gods. You got to put away those lesser gods. Talked about that last week. You got to make sure that Christ is the priority of your life and not the other things. The lesser gods were probably there from, from Rachel when she went back into Uncle Laban's house or Daddy's house and, and took the strange gods. And they're probably the foreign gods that they just picked up along the way by living in Shechem. I don't know if you know this or not, but by living in a sinful world, an unchristlike world, do you know you can just live in it and start to catch the attitudes of the world and misplace the attitudes of Christ in your life? You ever notice that? Man, there are more and more of us talking like ungodly people rather than godly people. There are more and more of us watching things that ungodly folks watch, and we got no business watching, but we're watching them too. More and more of us got the same attitude, the same temper issues, the same relational issues. I'm just simply saying that when you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, and thank God for it, not only did he save you and clean us up, but he called us to live a different life and a different way of life. Jacob forgot that. He got comfortable in Shechem. Man, he was just chilling in Shechem. Nobody was there to test his faith. There was no conflict. He didn't have to step out of his comfort zone. Life was good. God said, it may be good, but it's not the best place for you. Because I've called you to be a unique people, a peculiar people. The first Peter would say, a holy nation. And so you and I got to understand, and we've just got to embrace it, that as Christians, we are to live differently than non-Christians. Amen? God has called us to live. The Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and all things have become new. And there's some things that ought not to be named among us anymore. You ever read the Bible? It's a good book, Philippians chapter 4, verses 30 and 31. Put all anger and wrath and malice and bitterness and slander. Oh, my word. Anybody hear gossip this week? I mean, you, we just go on. It is so easy when, you, when we live in a non-Christian world to pick up the attitudes, the priorities of this world. Jacob had gotten comfortable in Shechem and he had started to pick up and appropriate for himself the values of that culture 
and simply said, okay, this is what it means to be a God follower. No, it does not. Matter of fact, if you, if you can get there quickly, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 14 through 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Verses 14 through 18. I want you to know this because I want you to highlight it in your Bible. It'll be up on the screen, but it'll be about four verses. But it says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? In other words, what partnership does Bethel have with Shechem? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Verse 15 says, what accord has Christ made with Bealau or Bel? And what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Look at verse 16. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they will be my people. Listen, let's stay right there for just a second. Did you get the first couple of verses? He's saying, listen, we're not to to hate the peoples of the world. We're to love everybody. We're just not to think like that. We're not to act like that. The attitude, the anger, the rage, and all that goes on in our culture today. Uh-uh. Not to be part of the greed and, and the self-centeredness. Not to be a part. We are to live differently as a child of God. And if we do that, if we do that, there are some wonderful promises for you and for me. Pretty close to these promises that God made to Jacob back at Bethel. He said, look at this. Look at verse 16. I will make my dwelling among them. He said, God will live with us. Verse 16 says, he'll walk with us. Keep reading. And it says that he will be our God. Look at verse 17. That if you live this different life, if you live a Christ-centered, Bible-based, gospel life, then therefore go out in their midst and be separate among them, saith the Lord, and do not touch the unclean things. And I will welcome you. He will receive us. And verse 18 says that he'll be our father. And I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me. Boy, what a great verse to hear on Father's Day, that he wants to be your heavenly father. But you don't get it living any way you want to. You don't live it calling the shots. You don't get it deciding where you're going to plan it down and to live. The Bible says if we're going to get on track, Jacob teaches us, is that we've got to live differently. Number three, the third lesson you've got to learn to get back on track, it means to bring God's renewed power and protection. Look at verse 5. It brings God's power and protection. And as they journeyed, now remember it was a day journey. But now it, it, it probably took more than that because they had herds and flocks and all kinds of gear and stuff to move. But as they journeyed, the terror of God, the fear of the Lord fell upon the cities that were round about them. And they did not pursue Jacob. That's incredible. Now, by the way, it was important for Jacob to understand that God's power and protection would be there. Jacob stayed there for 10 years in Shechem. Some people think he stayed there out of fear. If you go back to chapter 34 in verse verse 10 or verse 30, it seems to lead us to believe that Jacob stayed there because fear controlled him because he thought the Canaanites and the Persians would join forces to wipe out his family. And to get back on track, he had to trust God to do what God could only do because he is an all-powerful, as you sung about it, 
almighty, sovereign God creator of this universe. And if God wants to put his power and hand of power and protection on and blessing on you, I'm telling you, nothing can touch you. Get this. They journeyed. They're not warriors. They're businessmen. They're, they're farmers. They're, they're in agriculture and horticulture. They're in livestock, whatever you call those folks. And, and they were in all of that. And the fear of the Lord fell upon them. The power of God, the anointing of God was so upon them. Maybe it's because they heard of what they did to the men of Shechem. I don't know. Maybe it was some way similar to what God did with Moses and the children of Israel with the cloud by the fire by night and the cloud by day. I don't know. All I know is that as they traveled, people stayed away because the fear of God. The terror from the Lord was upon them. Listen, please hear this. God is more powerful than the thing that you fear or the things that control you. To get back on track, when you get back on track, it brings renewed, it renews and brings renewed power from God and protection from God in your life to deal with those things that got you off track in the first place. Jesus said it this way. He said, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Let me give you the fourth lesson of getting back to Bethel or getting back on track. It means straightening out your priorities. It means straightening out your priorities. There's this really cool little thing that happens in verses 6 and 7, and we almost miss it. Matter of fact, you can almost go down through verse 10 or verse 9, and there's two different things that get a name change. The first that I want to point out to you is that Jacob changed the name of the place from Bethel which means house of God, to El, and in, in El is, is a Hebrew for God, part of Yahweh, El Shaddai, Elohim. Um, you can just go on with a lot of the El names of the gospel. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel. Luz was the Canaanite name. Hebrew, or Bethel was the name that he gave it after he had wrestled with the devil and God had made the promises there, which in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar. And he called the place El Bethel. I want you to understand the difference. It carries a lot more weight in the Hebrew than it does in our English language. Bethel means the house of God. And the emphasis is given to house because of its order in the sentence. But when he said, El Bethel, it's no longer the house of God, but it is the God of this house. Bethel, the place of God, no. He got a new name, El Bethel, the God of this place. It was Jacob's way of saying, hey, listen, I got to get my priorities right. It's not family, it's not finances, it's, it's not the job, it's not friends, it's God first. That's the priority. God is number one, El Bethel, the God of this place, the God of this house, the God of my life. And my priorities and my values will reflect El Bethel. Isn't that great? By the way, in that same passage, you'll find that God changes the name of Jacob to Israel. 
Jacob's name meant deceiver, supplanter, not a very, not a very accommodating name at all. But he changed his name to Israel, which means prince among nations. See, when you get your priorities right, God's free to change things in your lives on a degree and on a scale you can't even imagine. So what comes first in your life? For most of us, it's our families. For most of us, it's our jobs. For most of us, it's our friends. And somewhere we sprinkle in a little bit of God and a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of church just to spice everything up. But getting back on track means straightening out your priorities to where Jesus is your top priority and our families and our jobs and our friends are there to sprinkle life all up. Finally, getting back on track means rededicating your life to God. In verses 10 through 12, you see this this wonderful kind of conclusion to the first part of the Bethel story, the El Bethel story. And God said to him, your name is Jacob, and no longer shall you be called Jacob, and Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am your God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. In other words, your heritage. And the land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. It's a repetition of the Abrahamic covenant from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. Wow. The promises that God made to Abraham was the same promise that he made for Isaac and the same promises he made for Jacob. Can I just tell you something? This Bible is full of promises. And the promises in there are just as good for you and for me as it was to those that it was originally spoken to. Why? Because they're based on God's word and God's truth and God's power. Getting back to Bethel, getting back on track means living the Christian life. And it's more than religion. It's a lifestyle. Listen, if you eat donuts all week long, drinking a Diet Coke is not going to help you. Amen? If you've operated apart from grace all week long, hear me. If you've apart, operated apart from God and Jesus Christ and grace all week long showing up on church on Sunday is not going to get you back on track coming to church will make you feel better but it doesn't get you back on track God changes Jacob's name to Israel and it was to remind him who he was and who he's to be the story is told of the daughter of Queen Elizabeth she was sitting in a chair and she was, you know, the princess, and she was sitting in the chair. She was slouching. Then she'd shift, and she would sit awkwardly. They were out in public, and the queen's daughter had become an embarrassment. She was not behaving in concert with her identity, and the queen looked at her daughter and said, Sit up. Don't you know who you are? And this was God's call, Genesis 35, verses 1 through 10, 1 through 12, going back to Bethel. It was his call to say, hey, listen, don't you know who you are? Straighten up. Don't you know who you are? You're no longer Jacob. You are now Israel. And the promise I made with Abraham is the promise I'm making with you. And through you and through your father and through your grandfather, the entire world will be, has been, and will continue to be blessed. Christians, sometimes we forget 
who we are. Stop letting the world define who we are. We are the child of God. We are saints. We are sanctified. We are holy. We have the royal blood of Christ flowing through our veins. And that's who you are. And that's who I am to be in Jesus Christ. We're different. Proud of the difference. You have to do a lot of work of leaving the apathy and spiritual indifference behind. Getting back on track means going back to Bethel and falling in love with Jesus Christ all over again. I'm not talking about getting saved all over again. I'm just simply saying, hey, God, I realize I've gotten comfortable in Shechem. I've gotten comfortable with wrong values and wrong priorities. I've gotten comfortable with just being close to the house of God, but not making you the God of this house. And I need to come and rededicate my heart and just say, Lord, I'm coming back to Bethel. I'm getting back on track. Forgive me and use me. Would you bow your heads and would you close your eyes?